Last month, I marked my 50th anniversary in the business of journalism. The reason I mention this personal note, incriminating as it is, is because the news story I'm going to talk about today is the one I will remember the most from those years. And it's not even close. Other stories I wrote or edited were important, and it's not that I'm not proud to have written or edited them, but the tragedy of Libby, Montana, and in a larger sense, the tragedy of asbestos in America and across the world dwarfs them all by any metric. Emotional impact, loss of life, corporate misconduct, government negligence, and a healthy dose of government heroism as well. Let's start at the beginning. In fact, since this is a history conference, let's start darn near at the very beginning, say 80 million years ago, when a huge plume of magma rose from the mantle of the earth, stopping a mile or so from the surface. This particular magma was extraordinarily rich in magnesium and had much more water in it than most. That first plume was joined by others, which formed a dike around it, and then the whole mess began to cool. That first plume formed biotite, a kind of mica from a combination of potassium, magnesium, iron, and aluminum silicate. The formation is all but unique. Huge, beautiful crystals of biotite the size of your sofa exist in what would be named Zonalite Mountain. As the magma cooled even more, tremolite, a type of asbestos, formed. Tens of millions of years later, after wind and rain and ice sheets eroded the crust above the biotite, the softer rock around it fell away, the elements worked their powers on the biotite itself. At Zonalite Mountain, it broke down into vermiculite, and the two minerals, vermiculite and tremolite, were left side by side. Now we'll use our geological time machine and fast forward to 1916. An ambitious Libby hotel keeper named Edgar Alley claimed some mineral rights in the surrounding country hoping he might discover marketable deposits of copper or silver or other metals that might prove valuable in manufacturing for the war that was already raging in Europe. He was exploring an abandoned shaft on one of his claims when his miner's candle penetrated the soft surface of the overhead. What he saw then was the earth seemingly come to life with what looked like a hundred worms seeming to writhe all around the invading light. But in a few moments, he realized that what he found were flaky pieces of some mineral that were reacting to the heat of the candle by expanding quickly. Fascinated, he took as many samples as he could carry back to the hotel. Ali soon discovered that the little flakes of mineral once expanded with heat were not only fireproof, but potentially useful as an insulator, and the vermiculite mining industry was born. For the next eight decades, First steam shovels, then huge diesel-powered machines tore at the earth of Zonalite Mountain, collecting the magical vermiculite that Alley had discovered, and along with it, its le lethal geological neighbor, tremolite asbestos. As I wrote in the book, An Air That Kills, with my partner Andy Schneider, more on him in a moment, Zonalite Mountain was like a heart then, pulsing with the roar of mining, pushing its a mineralogical hell broth of vermiculite and asbestos along the arterial rails and across the country to hundreds of processing plants. 
It would suffuse the flesh and bone of a new industrial society, being added into wallboard, into roofing, into garden products. And worst of all, it would be placed undiluted in the sacks that carried no warnings, sold as insulation and dumped in dusty, deadly profusion inside millions of walls and acres of attics in houses across America, where much of it remains. The consequences of those 80 years of mining are incalculable. Forward again now to 1999, I was the investigations editor at the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, having moved six months before from a comfortable writing life in Livingston, Montana, back into the chaotic newsroom world I knew well. At that time, the investigative team at the PI consisted of one magnificent and famously grumpy reporter, Andrew Schneider. Seriously, I felt so lucky to have a reporter like Andy, a two-time Pulitzer winner, to work with. But how best to use him? The first story I wanted to do when I got there was a thoroughgoing look at cyanide heap leach mining on public lands in the West. I knew that some mining companies, many of them multinationals, had used an archaic law called the Mining Act of 1872 to acquire mineral rights on public lands across the West, and some of them had scraped tons of ore from mountainsides and poured a cyanide solution through to extract gold. Some of those mine outfits had taken millions in gold and left environmental messes behind them, either from unremediated tailings impoundments or from acid mine drainage, and the EPA was stuck trying to clean that up. No newspaper had done a thorough job of cataloging and quantifying those events, so I sent Schneider and my environmental reporter, Robert McClure, and two photographers, Gil Arias and Paul Kitagaki, to nine states across the West, gathering material for this story. We were working on the last state on our list, Montana, and Andy was at Zortman, gathering information about Pegasus Gold's Zortman Landusky mine, that had been shut down the previous year after multiple cyanide spills and leaks of acids, arsenic, and lead, and was polluting water on the Fort Belknap Indian Reservation. In a way, Zorman was a perfect encapsulation of the story we were chasing, and we were on the home stretch. But Andy called me from Zortman one evening. He'd heard that day that there might be sick people in Libby from working in a mine. I was completely focused on our current mission, and I remember asking him, is there a hard rock mine on public lands? No, and no, he said with some asperity. It's a vermiculite mine, of all things, but I heard people are sick. Maybe people have died. I knew at that point we had no choice. We were so tantalizingly close to having the reporting finished on the mining story. Go check it out, I said. It's 500 miles away, he said. <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> and what I also knew was that it wasn't the quickest 500-mile drive either. <laughs> Andy found that out, and he arrived in Libya a little out of sorts. As I mentioned, he could be irascible, and when he met Gala Benefield, who starts every day feisty and usually moves way past irascible by noon, it was not the most propitious of beginnings. You see, by the time Andy arrived in Libby in 1999, Gala Benefield had already been fighting for more than a decade to get somebody to pay attention to the dying there. She'd had about enough of know-it-all, out-of-town journalists who couldn't be bothered with her story. 
Just the thought of those two colliding in the world makes me think of a contest between a grinding wheel and an oxyacetylene torch. <laughs> Lots of friction and sparks and flying metal fragments. Sure enough, their first encounter did not go particularly well. After a couple of comments misinterpreted in each direction, the chill was deep enough that when Andy asked Gala if there was a good Italian restaurant in Libby, she snapped, try Pizza Hut. <laughs> and so ended the discussion. But Andy persisted, and when Gala took him to the Libby Cemetery to see the graves of her parents, both of whom died of asbestos-related disease, he was profoundly moved, and he realized she wasn't just bluster. She knew what she was talking about. And for her part, Gala decided he was serious and could be trusted. The two developed a relationship that would change Montana, change many lives for the better in Libby, and change journalism itself. Soon he was in her kitchen drinking the coffee she brews around the clock and looking at a document she handed him called the Alpha List. The Alpha List was the Rosetta Stone of the Libby investigation because whatever else we managed to gather in the ensuing months and years, there was nothing quite so illuminating or damning as an alphabetized list of W.R. Grace employees at the Libby Line carefully annotated with the company's estimate of the, quote, asbestos years, unquote, of exposure each of their employees had suffered. It showed in horrifying detail just how well the company had tracked the progression of occupational disease through its workforce all the while telling workers the material they worked with wouldn't hurt them, that the thick, choking substance clouding the air and coating everything in the mill was just, quote, nuisance dust, unquote. Building on that report, we would find out the company controlled the hospital and by extension the entire medical community in town, that the workers' chest x-ray program was for the company's benefit, with the information never shared with the workers or their families, and that the company actually developed a job rotation plan to get the most possible work out of increasingly sickened miners. We would then find a document that to this day implicates the state of Montana and the tragedy of Libby. It's the main reason the state remains a defendant in hundreds of cases. It was a state health department inspection report. On August 8, 1956, Benjamin Wake, a young industrial hygiene engineer, arrived at the mine for its first state inspection since 1944. Wake found 100 workers on the job, although a few days earlier, 40 men had been laid off for supposed lack of work, only to be rehired after the inspector left. For two days, Wake gathered samples of dust from everywhere, Despite the mine's reduced production and doubtless some pre-inspection cleanup, there was certainly no shortage of dust to collect. He used vacuum pumps to pull the air into filters so the level of dust the workers were breathing could be measured. The asbestos in the air is of considerable toxicity, Wake wrote in his report, a line that leaped off the page more than four decades later when Andy Schneider and I read it. Why was nothing done? One reason was the terms under which Wake visited. As a precondition to the inspection, the state agreed that the only people who would be given the report were mine executives. That was the only way the company allowed Wake on the property. Wake returned in 1959 and 1960 and 1962. Each time, he found little had been done to control the dust. Each time, the company filed the reports away and told no one. 
Like the Alpha List, the Wake reports showed that the company knew the mine was poisoning its workers, and so, horrifyingly, did the state of Montana. I watched Andy develop a profusion of source relationships with doctors, EPA workers, epidemiologists, public health authorities, attorneys, and just plain folks, like Les Gramstad, a former Libby miner with asbestosis, who fought to save his family and others from the slow, agonizing death he faced. I, too, developed a special relationship with both Les and Gayla, and came to admire their courage, literally, in the face of death. Les Grandstad was a simple, straightforward working man. He loved his job at the Zonalite Mine. Even if the company had told him how dangerous it was, how he was exposing himself to the lethal danger of asbestos-related disease, every day he was there, he would probably have stayed. But if they had told him that each of those days he was also endangering his family because he wore his dusty clothing home, after all, there were no showers or changing facilities provided at the mine, and exposed them to the same dreadful disease, he would, as he told me bitterly later, have run like hell. Andy and I knew then we had a huge story, but we were faced with a large difficulty. Where were the deaths? As far as we could tell from combing records, there was no death certificate with the word asbestos on it. The company for years had controlled the healthcare infrastructure in the town, donating heavily to the hospital and in effect financing the doctors who worked there. Families were often told tobacco was the culprit. Indeed, in, uh, clinically, asbestos exposure combined with tobacco has a powerful multiplier effect. But some families would walk away puzzled their loved one hadn't even smoked. How could his killer have been tobacco? Well, I've already told you about Andy Schneider's disposition. He was not the most patient of men when corporations dissembled about the harm they were doing their workers and others, or the government failed to do its job. Or, I can tell you as his editor, when a newspaper's bureaucracy stood in the way of news gathering and storytelling. But a person in trouble always opened his heart. And in this story, and over the next two years as we continued to investigate the toll of asbestos in America, he showed me again and again how to channel that compassion into truly fearsome news reporting. In this case, when Andy discovered that not one death certificate in Lincoln County, Montana, had the words asbestos-related disease in the space where cause of death was supposed to go, he took it as a challenge. He realized that asbestos victims would have seen lung specialists, so he began calling pulmonologists all over the West. Of course, they would give him no names of patients. But then most of them did ultimately agree to cross-check a list of names of those who had died in Libby and provide basic information, yes, this was my patient, and yes, he or she died of asbestos-related disease. In that way, he confirmed more than 200 asbestos-caused deaths in Libby itself. And we were able to report authoritatively that the Libby Amphibole was killing people and that those deaths had been covered up. One of those specialists, Alan Whitehouse of Spokane, had many Libby patients. And he courageously stepped forward, glad someone was following this public health outrage, and told Schneider on the record what he knew. Way too many people from Libby, tiny Libby, were dying of lung disease. We had yet another key question to answer. The mine had closed years before, but for those eight decades of operation, the winds had carried tons and tons of dust into the town. 
Were people in Libya still being exposed to dangerous levels of asbestos? We decided we had to test. So Andy, who providentially had a degree in public health and knew what he was doing, set up air pumps and took soil samples. The results were a clear yes. People in Libya were still at risk. The story just kept growing. We were stunned. How could this have escaped public attention for all these years? One reason we would later find was that in many cases when people would get sick, the mine owner, W.R. Grace, would get them to sign non-disclosure agreements, cut them a modest check, and send them home to die. But in a larger sense, there were several dynamics at work that protected the company. One is the Montana work ethic. Montanans accept the fact that work is hard and work is dangerous, whether it is cowboy, logging, or mining. Some people got sick after working at the mine, and that was as far as a lot of people thought. Another was the town's extreme geographic isolation, but also there's a self-perpetuating cycle to the Libby situation. I call it the big lie syndrome. Tell a big enough lie, tell it often enough, and it becomes the conventional wisdom. A mine and mill killing townspeople? Preposterous. After Andy's first Libby story broke, the town held a public meeting to discuss the situation. The tiny high school gym in Libby filled with people dragging their green oxygen tanks. And for the first time, the Libby citizens talked in public about what was killing people there. People stood, tears streaming down their faces, and described losing multiple family members to asbestos-related disease. Within three days, an EPA team was in Libby, expecting to prove the journalists wrong. Instead, they discovered the country's worst environmental tragedy. Over the next year, they would also discover that their own agency had commissioned a report nearly two decades earlier, after workers at Grace's biggest customer for vermiculite, the Scotts Company, began to get sick, and the toxicity of the vermiculite products coming from Libby had been confirmed. But at that time, there was a federal commission that had been set up, the Grace Commission, to get government off the backs of industry. The chairman of that commission was J. Peter Grace, who happened to own the mine in Libyhouse. The early EPA report was buried. But the emergency team sent in after our stories did an amazing job. Now, just now, 20 years later, the cleanup is approaching completion. In this age of fake news, it's important to remember Daniel Patrick Moynihan's admonition, everyone is entitled to his own opinion, but not to his own facts. Andy took exactly nothing for granted. His stories in many ways were an editor's dream. The most important question an editor can ask, how do you know that, almost never applied to his work, because what he reported, he documented. When we were close to being finished with Andy's first amazing wave of Libby stories, I took a deep breath and said, Andy, what about the rest of asbestos? Don't you think we need to leverage the Libby story into an investigation of asbestos in America? And I was rewarded with a long, appraising look, something P.G. Wodehouse would have referred to as the fisheye. <laughs> and let me tell you, Andy Schneider could give you the fisheye. The answer came soon enough. Of course we should, he said quietly. Look at what we found out. Asbestos is legal in every form in America. Companies like Grace still have free reign to go and poison their employees, their employees' families, and their customers. And almost no one really realizes that. 
And there was the next two years of journalism giving me the fish eye. As his reporting took us in new directions, further independent testing proved invaluable. We bought brake shoes with the words, contains no asbestos on the packaging and found them loaded with a fiber. We tested a wide variety of consumer products, finding in the process that Crayolas, the nation's leading brand of crayon, tested positive for asbestos. So we, we went out and bought another box of 64 and took it for another test. Results were consistent. They too contained asbestos. So we asked the chemist at the Art and Materials Institute, which had authorized the placement of a non-toxic seal on Crayola boxes, if he had tested Crayolas for asbestos. No, he replied. Why not, Andy asked. Because it isn't there, he replied. We asked the Consumer Product Safety Commission if it had tested Crayolas for asbestos. No, was the response. Well, when that story ran, the public reaction was predictably overwhelming. Manufacturer Binion Smith knew it had some explaining to do. They held a hurried press conference and introduced a supposedly independent chemist who held up a brown crayon and said, I tested this today and it contains absolutely no asbestos. But because Schneider was thorough, we were able to report the next day that the hired chemist had been paid in his career more than $7 million to testify in court for the asbestos industry. Finally, shamed by the public outcry, the CPSC did indeed test Crayolas. The agency's tests, like ours, found asbestos. And the next day, manufacturer Binion Smith quit denying and said, okay, we'll take it out. There's immense power in being right because you checked the facts. An important note about this, we were able to do much of this very technical reporting because the news organization we work for paid for many laboratory tests. I saw those invoices and they weren't cheap. These days, as the press is attacked and as more disinformation is thrown out into the atmosphere about exposure, toxicity, and the like, there will be many more opportunities for news to step up where governments fail to do so and to do such important fact-finding. It's expensive, but journalism organizations need to spend the money to protect readers and the public. There are no shortcuts to this, and news organizations, even the best ones in today's climate, must be reminded of their public trust. That's one of the things editors must do. After finding out what happened in Libby, Schneider had expanded his reporting to reveal that Libby asbestos was spread far and wide around the country, and the death followed it everywhere, that workers at vermiculite expansion plants and other factories around the country, and railroad workers who carried the ore had died of asbestos exposure. In similar fashion, after discovering the asbestos in Crayolas, Schneider went further. He wanted to know where it came from. He found that the Vanderbilt Talc Company provided talc used as a stiffener in crayons to Binion Smith. He also found out that the company had decades before advertised the asbestos content of its talc as a selling point for industrial use. Furthermore, he discovered that the company's owner had once boasted to workers that he had a U.S. Senator in his pocket. So he went to upstate New York where the talc mine was and there he found miners dying of white lung or talcosis from the mine's tremolytic talc and he found the gravestones of those who had died before them. It would be a few years before the company would close the mine and a few more years before New York's court system would finally disgorge 
a multi-million dollar damage verdict against Vanderbilt, but Schneider's reporting for the first time put the company on notice that it would be held accountable. Andy's persistence is the biggest lesson. Never quit. We can't quit, not as long as there are thousands of people still being diagnosed and dying every year of asbestos-related disease in America. As long as there are teenage girls using their first makeup and putting poison on their faces, and students and their teachers dying from the hazard in their schoolrooms, as they still are in the UK, and the children of working men dying from hugging them when they get home, as they still are here in America. Not as long as there are new efforts to market this fiber by an unrepentant industry on every continent. But this story started on a mountainside in Libby, Montana, and it continues right there. People are still being diagnosed today, and no one knows even when the incidence of disease will peak there. So journalists, the enemy of the people, still have more work to do. Thank you.